Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. This is a bonus episode where we're going to be talking about slavery reparations. It's been in the news recently. California has been thinking about paying these out. We're going to examine this from a uh, biblical, from a moral, from a philosophical, and of course, from an economic perspective. And to kind of clue us in and what exactly was happening at the time, we're going to listen to some Booker T. Washington. I'll be reading you a passage from one of his books, chapter four-ish, something like that. Anyways, he has an insight into the, the emancipation and what was happening there. And I think that we really should pay heed to this historical perspective. So we're going to have a lengthy reading of that. And I, I think you'll enjoy that part. Also, we're going to be hearing from Thomas Sowell. He's a African-American economist and generally all-around awesome guy. And he has some thoughts specifically about slavery reparations. So we'll be reading from an article that he wrote on the topic. Okie dokie. Being a bonus episode, I'm going to try to keep my, my blood pressure nice and low. I don't know why it's economic topics that really get me, me fired up. Uh, more so than philosophical or theological topics, but this one's kind of an intersection of everything. And I, I, I'm going to say from the onset, I think slavery reparations are a very bad idea. So, in describing why, I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep my cool. So we're going to keep the temperature nice and low. I want this to be an episode that you'll feel comfortable sharing with people who do believe that slavery reparations are a good idea. So I have my cup of coffee. Bang! Right here, I'll be taking um, thoughtful sips along the way as I assemble as many arguments as I think uh, pertain to this particular subject. The first one is philosophical, and that is we know from uh, we know from the church. It's taught in the catechism, and in fact, it's it's dogma that when humans generate, it's not entirely natural. We are co-creators, but God has a special role in individually creating a soul for us. And this has a variety of implications, one of which is it means that I am as specially created and as unique from you as you are from your own grandfather. So when we talk about taxing some people and paying other people based on what your great-great-grandfather or mother did um, or who they were or what happened to them, the first thing we need to keep in mind is that I am just as related in my soul to an 1800s African-American as I am to an 1800s slave-owning Southerner. And that is not at all. <laughs> um, I, I may be physically related, but my soul was, was created by God himself. So that's the first point I want on the table. Now, you may have heard uh, some passages, there's one in Exodus and it's repeated in Deuteronomy that talks about sins attaching to children. And you might think, but wait, what on earth is going on there? Doesn't that void your earlier point? Well, let's read one of those. This is the one from Exodus. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, if you just read that and only that, 
you might think that the iniquity of the fathers means that uh, the children are guilty, that they ought to be punished for what their fathers have done. Well, we're going to read from Ezekiel, and I think it's going to clarify what exactly is going on. Ezekiel reads, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, we must say amen to every passage of the Bible, even if they appear to be contradictory. But here's how they absolutely aren't. In the first case, what it's talking about is these iniquities can have these results for children, generation to generation. A good example of this would be alcoholism, where if somebody's grandfather is an alcoholic, the odds that they're an alcoholic is way higher than if that grandfather wasn't. Now, are they guilty for something? For the grandfather sin? No, not unless they sin. But they are, um, they are at a loss. They are weakened in this regard because the effects of sin can carry down. That's the problem with sin, right? That's the whole idea of like Adam and Eve, right? The effect of their sin even affects our world today. So sin ripples out from its origin. That is the fact that we are affirming here in Exodus. But what Ezekiel's saying is that the actual guilt for the iniquity, the, uh, the, the need to suffer in retribution for what one has done, oh, that doesn't carry on. Absolutely not. Instead, it says that the righteousness shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So it's based on the soul who sins. Recall that earlier argument about the individually created souls. Here, Ezekiel is affirming that. God treats our guilt soul by soul, even if we can deal with the results of those prior to us and their sin affecting us somehow. Okay, that's what I want to have on the table to begin with. Um, I also take issue with the idea of blaming a race or taxing one race to pay another race. And for these similar reasons, because we should deal with individuals with regard to sin. We can't say that the whites sinned against the blacks. That's a type of generalization, a type of racism, if you will, because you are accusing all of one race for a sin of just a few of its members. I don't think that's right. I think that's actually racist, so we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't tax the white people to to pay reparations to the, the black people. Because those white people are not only individually created souls, not only not liable for the sins of their ancestors, but their membership in a race doesn't allow us to attach a sin by people from that race. That's as wrong as just saying, oh, some black people were um, involved in crime, therefore all black people are criminals. No, that's wrong. Or worse, to say, well, because some black people were committing a crime, we should just punish all black people for the crime. Well, of course not. Those things are ridiculous. Um, and so is slavery reparations. We can't apply a penalty to people of a race because the people who did an evil act were of the same race. That's just straight-up racism, and we don't support such things. And, you know, on the, on the subject of crime, I feel as though those who push the slavery reparations arguments 
If their arguments worked, they would prove too much. So let me just lay out the argument as I understand it, and we'll get to different variations. One would be um, a proportion of people in a given race, albeit small, um, committed a terrible crime against people of another race. All right, granted, sure. And because of this terrible criminal behavior um, and the terrible results that it has on the community, the affected community, uh, we ought to be able to tax these people and uh, provide reparations for the crimes that have been committed. Now, this argument is purported to be so strong that we could apply it even hundreds of years back, all the way back to the time of slavery, and find people today. Well, here's the issue. I said it that it proved too much if it works at all, and here's what it would prove. Currently, if you're an African American in the U.S., you are almost three times more likely to commit a violent crime than a white person here in the United States. Three times more likely. So if anything, using this very much defective argument, well, we can do a, a, a reductio ad absurdum. We can show that this argument um, proves things that we don't want it to prove. It would prove that today, I mean, much less from 100 years ago, but today we have one race doing a disproportionate amount of crimes, which does indeed harm our nation, harm all races, but also harm other groups. And uh, therefore, if that argument really held, we should do a tax for current crime on minorities who are more criminal and pay it to the offended races. I don't think anybody would support that. Certainly not those people who are advocating for reparations. No. So this is, this is quite the reversal, though. It works. This argument works for crimes 150 years ago, but not once today. How strange. It's almost like their principal aim is not justice, but it's something else. And we'll let Thomas Sowell describe what the motivation may be. So I think it proves too much if it proves anything. All right. Um, the other thing it asks us to do is to follow a very Marxist line of thinking. That is, Marx tells us that the proletariat is meant to be armed with the offenses of the past done against it in order to fuel the revolution. That is terrible. That is evil. That is not the use of history. In the Christian tradition, and the Jewish tradition that went before it, we're called again and again in Scripture to remember, but not to remember other people's faults. Instead, to remember what God has done for us, to remember and be grateful for all the things that God has done for us, to remember the covenant that God has created, to make a community that can worship him and thrive and succeed. And what are we told to forget in Christianity? We're told to forget people's offenses against us, because God is our model for this. He puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. So that's the Christian idea. Not that we should dredge up evils from the past, but instead that we should forget those and we should look back with gratitude for what God has done throughout the history which he ordained. Now you might think, yes, but there are legitimate evils and this is terrible and that justice ought to, to come. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. There are certain situations where the state ought to be the servant of God and have vengeance. I'm a vocal proponent for capital punishment, and I have podcasts talking about that. Um, but there's also times where such an intervention will harm the common good. 
I've suggested on other podcasts that people at the end of time choose to go to hell. And that may sound like just a, a way of evading the, the horror that, that a good God would, would allow for and create, indeed, a hell where there's, there's eternal uh, punishment. But I don't think so. And one of the arguments that I give for this is that there are um, things which would appear good to us that would lure us into hell. And the chief one that, that I suggest, this is speculative, is that in hell we'll get a chance to get what's owed, to get back, to, to have justice in a way, to punish others for their sins. I think there's going to be a giant wailing, gnashing teeth circle of violence. It's going to be like the Hatfields and the McCoys, where they have this record of offenses, these reciprocal offenses. Yes, sure, there should be vengeance in the order of justice. But you know what's even better? What's even better is mercy. And God prefers that type of mercy, the type of mercy that forgives and pardons wrongs and allows for peace. Now, justice is still justice, but there's times where we can go over and above justice, where we don't have to exact that, where we can say, in the words of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And if we don't forgive our debtors, then we won't be forgiven. So if we are the unforgiven in hell, then we will still be able to exact what's owed, to get what's owed from us. That opens up hell. And I suggest that a type of hell can be opened up here on earth when we follow the same, the same way, where without the divine love of God in our hearts, we go to execute justice. Without, without love, the seeking to have justice can become violent and terrible. Now, with love, it can become correction. It can become merciful. Um, love plus justice, well, that is mercy. Um, but when we're devoid of love and we seek justice, what we find is cruelty, revenge, evil. And I would suggest that this is what we'd be opening up. We'd be opening up a, uh, an inquiry in who has done evil in their, their history, in, in their family history, who has been offended and to what extent, and how much can we extract from others. And I think that that is, that is opening up a little hell in our society that will injure the common good, that will teach people the exact wrong thing. It won't teach virtue, it'll teach vice. It'll teach people to view history in the inverse of the way that scripture teaches us to view history. As if those were all the problems. Okay, coffee sip, hang on. So, there's, um, there's always a problem when we look at like a single factor analysis. When we imagine that the only bad thing that's ever happened was slavery, or that the only thing that happened was a bad thing. When we actually look back into the historical record, we'll find that the majority of white Americans not only didn't own slaves, but fought and died to free people from slavery. That's right. The Union was, I think, two-thirds of the population of the country, while the Confederacy was only one-third. One-third. So we lost over 600,000 people in the Civil War, and many were wounded grievously. People had their dads, their brothers, their, their sons go to war and be maimed and ripped apart by, by soldiers and, and cannonballs and, and, and get diseases and come back 
never the same or not come back at all. So there was a great evil. It was slavery. But there was also a great heroic self-sacrifice to end it. And that was, that was by the Union soldiers' um, defense of the freedom of man. So I would suggest that if we're going to level the scales, that if we're really going to be just, well, we would also have to include not just a bad thing that happened, slavery, but the good thing that happened, the heroic self-sacrifice. Because it's one thing to lose your freedom. That's terrible. But it's another to lose your life, for your family to lose their dad, their father, their their husband, their son, whatever. Um, That's what happened to so many families in the Union. They could have just ignored the evil. They could have just got along without it, but they didn't. They chose to fight. So I would suggest we would have to compensate all of the families of the Union soldiers. And of course, we wouldn't stop there either. Why, if we're really meant to reward all the good things that have happened and punish all the bad things that happen, well, that gets really tangled really quick, and we would need absolute omniscience to do that. Now, of course, we don't have absolute omniscience. Now, I don't think it's wrong to condemn the desire for this, right? Because we should have this desire. We should have a desire that all good and evil and every ounce of sin and merit is somehow sorted out and tabulated and that an all-powerful, omniscient force um, one day brings perfect justice. But guys, I'm going to go ahead and promise you that's not your elected officials. That's not the politicians. That is not our corrupted government or anything like that. With No, that's God. What you're hoping for is the resurrection at the end of time and the general judgment. That's what you want. And that's what we get. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. These things are beyond our ability to to tabulate. So I I gave the example of crimes which are committed now and how um, that argument could prove that we we ought to fine and and pay reparations now. Um, But obviously that'd be wrong according to race and obviously that's entirely unfeasible and there's many, many problems. So that isn't proven, well, the reparations isn't proven either. But I want to take it another way. Because an evil that happens a long time ago has a longer time to have terrible repercussions. It's like that pebble that's that's thrown in a pond. Um, As you go out, you get longer and, and, and larger ripples until they reach the end edge of the pond. So it could be true that the length of time between now and when slavery was going on actually has allowed for evil things to propagate even more. We could grant that. The issue is now we have another problem. If the argument which proves reparations are needed and is expanded on because we have this long time for the evils um, to uh, metastasize through society, if that proves anything, well, now we should punish and give reparations for the most distant evils. So, where do we stop there? I don't know. We could we could go back to um, we could go back to slavery that was uh, practiced in in Rome. We should find the Italians, right? Because they, well, and and the French, because well, all that was the Roman Empire, and we should pay that to North Africa, or I don't know. We should. Uh, fine all of the Mongolians because of Genghis Khan. Think of all the terrible things he did. Or we could go back further and further. Maybe we should should fine all of Europe because they 
killed all the Neanderthals and took took their land. Like, where do we stop? I would suggest we allow God to deal with this issue. And we recognize in humility that we are not God, that we cannot always perform God's justice because we lack his power, his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his justice, his omniscience. All right, so one might think, but the South got off scot-free. They were never punished, right? They did this terrible evil and they weren't punished. Au contraire, mon ami. You see, it's not that they gained this massive amount of wealth from slavery and then slavery ended and they, they went on with their pot of gold. No, the wealth that was accrued was lost. It was destroyed. Some by things like Sherman's March. Some just in the process of war. And some, as we'll learn from our reading from Booker T. Washington, because slavery, like any sin, it, uh, it militates against all sorts of virtues. And virtue makes you unhappy. Makes you, or lack of virtue makes you unhappy. Makes you miserable. So these people, by having slaves, they atrophied in critical virtues, which meant as soon as the slaves are gone, they didn't know how to work. They didn't have skills. They were crushed. And good. That's the way natural consequences work. You do something evil and uh, you bear the consequences. Um, the South is poor to this day relative to other parts of the country, in part because the whole thing crumbled. They already lost all of that wealth. And not just for the few who owned slaves, and it was a very small minority that actually did own slaves. Most of the people in the South who were white didn't own slaves. Um, but the entire the entire area slipped into poverty. Oh, I have another one. You might think, okay, you've you've argued persuasively that we we shouldn't be punishing people. Uh, as if they did a crime because, well, you're not actually liable for a crime that your great-great-grandfather did, obviously, or at least that should be obvious. But, hey, you just said earlier that the effects can continue, so we should we should compensate people who bear the effects. And there are, of course, huge practical issues. One is the fact that we have many um, ancestors. Uh, most African Americans, or at least a very large amount, are mixed with white because it's been hundreds of years. Uh, next is the terrible assumption that um, black people and poor people are the same group. That's simply false. We Those two are not synonymous. They're a vast amount of extraordinarily successful African Americans in our country. So just lump them in as if they all need help. They all need reparations. They all got terribly economically damaged from this. I just say that's false. Next, many African-Americans were not in the South. Um, also, um, many of the white people that are here today are children of immigrants who had nothing to do with slavery, or some of which were enslaved themselves at some point. Hashtag Irish. Um, yeah, so practically tracing back the roots of this and calculating the payments is insane. Um, assuming that the people we're compensating are all one um, homogenous group and they were all somehow affected, that's also false. We also have the immigration problem with that, by the way. Um, and then we have to just ask the follow-up question, well, hang on, how much would we compensate them? How much were they actually hurt by this? Well, one Thing we always have to ask in any economic discussion is the key economic question, compared to what? So the claim is that the uh, African Americans in the United States were economically 
disadvantaged? Let's ask our question. Economically disadvantaged compared to what? Oh, well, that's an awkward question because the compared to what is actually compared to people who weren't enslaved, right? Well, who were they? Well, those are the people who remained in Africa. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, but wait a minute. I thought this argument was that we're supposed to compensate the people for a loss relative to the people who didn't have this crime perpetrated against them. But the people who didn't have this crime perpetrated against them, on average, are poorer. Well, that's awkward. So if anything, if this argument proves anything that we should level the difference between enslaved and not slaved groups, then we should actually tax the African-American people who are in our nation today because compared to the people who weren't enslaved, i.e. those people who were um, in Africa at the time, uh, our population of Africans are wealthier, are safer, um, have far more opportunity in education, etc., um, than any, not than anybody, than the average person um, in the population from which their ancestors originally came. So again, if it proves anything, it proves way too much. And we have these really weird and obviously wrong conclusions. <laughs> Nobody is advocating that we, that we tax African-Americans because they are better off than the people who didn't have the crime of slavery um, happen to their ancestors. Um, but likewise, we shouldn't have anybody make the ridiculous argument that we should compensate people for this, especially when, yes, in in the end, they did benefit from that. But you might be saying, well, yes, but they, the compared to what should be compared to, oh, I don't know, the, the other people at their time uh, who are doing similar things. For instance, the poor white tenement farmers, or um, what do you call them? Whatever the farmer, yeah, tenement farmers, who were um, operating um, on leased sections of the plantation. Well, I was going to get a quote for that, but I never got around to it. Uh, the fact is that by some estimations, in some places, the slaves lived better lives than the poor whites because they had at least a wealthy plantation owner who had a vested interest in their continued survival and productivity, whereas some of the poor whites were up to just whatever happened in the weather, and they could be wiped out. They could hit a point where they couldn't pay for their food and lodging. So if we compare it to them, not always, but sometimes, uh, economically speaking, they could be coming out of ahead. Or at very least, we would have to go on a case-by-case basis of every single person's ancestors and find out, did they actually have a total compensation package, risk-adjusted, that was higher or lower than the people who were doing a similar job at the time in a free state. And then we'd have to calculate all that out and then apply a reasonable interest rate um, for the positive or negative sum. And then, oh goodness, you see how ridiculous this is. This is impossible. All right. Now you might be saying, yeah, 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 but it's not an economic question. This is also a crime. Mm -hmm. That's how I started. We can't punish completely distinct souls for crimes of souls which have nothing to do with them. Um, We can't punish the great-grandchildren of somebody who did something evil for what their great-grandparent did. We already addressed that. So neither can we make a compelling economic case, nor a compelling moral case. Um, I, 
I just think in general, the slavery reparations are a terrible idea. Which brings us to our Booker T. Washington quote. Now, um, I know people get touchy on this this, uh, subject in general, so I have a warning coming up. I'm going to be reading exactly what he wrote, and he uses a certain word which people find offensive. No, it is not the N-word. It is the word Negro. That was the common term, and it comes from Latin simply meaning black, which is not offensive. In fact, he uses the word white in other places. So you're talking about people who are black, people who are white. So be mature here and listen to the following quote. Hang on. Fueled by coffee. One may get the idea from what I have said that there was a bitter feeling towards the white people on the part of my race because of the fact that most of the white population was away fighting in a war which would result in keeping the Negro in slavery if the South was successful. In the case of the slaves on our, in the case of the slaves on our place, this was not true. It was not true of any large proportion of the slave population in the South where the Negro was treated with anything like decency. During the Civil War, one of my young masters was killed and two were severely wounded. I recall the feeling of sorrow which existed among the slaves when they heard of the death of Mars Billy. It was no sham sorrow, but real. Some of the slaves had nursed Mars Billy. Others had played with him when he was a child. Mars Billy had begged for mercy in the case of others when the overseer or master was thrashing them. The sorrow of the slave quarter was only second to that in the big house, when the two young masters were brought home wounded. The sympathy of the slaves was shown in many ways. They were just as anxious to assist in the nursing of the family members of the wounded. Some of the slaves would even beg for the privilege of sitting up at night to nurse their wounded masters. This tenderness and sympathy on the part of those held in bondage was the result of their kindly and generous nature. In order to defend and protect the women and children who were left on the plantations when the white males went to war. The slaves would have laid down their lives. The slave who was selected to sleep in the big house during the absence of the males was considered to have the place of honor. Anyone attempting to harm young mistress or old mistress during the night would have had to cross the dead body of a slave to do so. I do not know how many have noticed it, but I think that it would be, that it will be found to be true that there are few instances, either in slavery or freedom, in which a member of my race has been known to betray a specific trust. As a rule, not only did the members of my race entertain no feelings of bitterness against the whites during and after the er, before and during the war, but there are many instances of Negroes tenderly caring for their former masters and mistresses, who for some reason have become poor and dependent since the war. I know of instances where the former masters of slaves have for years been supplied with money by their former slaves to keep them from suffering. I have known of still other cases in which the former slaves have assisted in the education of the descendants of their former owners. I know of a case on a large plantation in the South in which a young white man, the son of the former owner of the estate, has become so reduced in purse and self-control by reason of drink, that he is a pitiable creature. And yet, notwithstanding the poverty of the colored people themselves on this plantation, they for years supplied this young white man with the necessities of life. 
One sends him a little coffee or sugar, another a little meat, and so on. Nothing that the colored people possess is too good for the son of old Mars Tom, who will perhaps never be permitted to suffer, while any remain on the place to whom he directly or indirectly, to whom he knew directly or indirectly of old Mars Tom. I have said there are few instances of a member of my race betraying a specific trust. One of the best illustrations of this, which I know of, is the case of an enslaved from Virginia, whom I met not long ago in a little town in the state of Ohio. I found that this man had made a contract with his master two or three years prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, to the effect that the slave was to be permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body, and while he was paying for himself, he was to be permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. Finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, he went there. When freedom came, he was still in debt to his master some $300, notwithstanding that the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligation to his master. This black man walked the greater portion of the distance back to where his old master lived in Virginia and placed the last dollar, with interest, in his hands. In talking to me about this, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay the debt, but that he had given his word to the master, and his word he had never broken. He felt that he could not enjoy his freedom till he had fulfilled his promise. From some things that I have said, one may get the idea that some of the slaves did not want freedom. This is not true. I have never seen one who did not want to be free or one who, did, who would want to return to slavery. I pity from the bottom of my heart any nation or body of people that is so unfortunate as to get entangled in the net of slavery. I have long since ceased to cherish any spirit of bitterness against the southern white people on account of the enslavement of my race. No one section of this country was wholly responsible for its introduction, and besides, it was recognized and protected for years by the general government, having once got its tentacles fastened onto the economic and social life of the republic. It was not so easy for the country to relieve itself of the institution. Then, when we rid ourselves of prejudice or racial feeling and look facts in the face, we must acknowledge that notwithstanding the cruelty and moral wrong of slavery, the 10 million Negroes inhabiting this country, who themselves or whose ancestors went through the school of American slavery, are in a stronger in a more hopeful position, materially, intellectually, morally, religiously, than is true of an equal number of black people in any other portion of the globe. See, you guys thought I was racist earlier when I said that, but hey, this is straight Booker T. This is, this is so to such an extent that Negroes in this country, who themselves or whose forefathers went through the school of slavery, are constantly returning to Africa as missionaries to enlighten those who remained in the fatherland. This I say, not to justify slavery. On the other hand, I condemn it as an institution. As we all know that in America it was established for selfish and financial reasons and not from a missionary motive, but to call attention to a fact and to show how providence so often uses men and institutions to accomplish a purpose. When persons ask me in these days how, in the midst of what sometimes seems hopelessly dis discouraging conditions, I can have such faith in the future of my race in this country, I remind them of the wildernesses through which and out of which a good providence has already led us. Ever since, 
I have been old enough to think for myself. I have entertained the ideas that, notwithstanding the cruel wrongs inflicted upon us, the black man got nearly as much out of slavery as the white man did. The hurtful influences of the institution were not by any means confined to the Negro. This was fully illustrated by the life upon our own plantation. The whole machinery of slavery was so constructed as to cause labor, as a rule, to be looked upon as a badge of degradation or inferiority. Hence, labor was something that both races on the slave plantation sought to escape. The slave system on our place, in a large measure, took the spirit of self-reliance and self-help out of the white people. My old master had many boys and girls, but not one, as far as I know, ever mastered a single trade or a special line of productive industry. The girls were not taught to cook or sew or to take care of the house. All that was left to the slaves. The slaves, of course, had little personal interest in the life of the plantation, and their ignorance prevented them from learning how to do things in the most improved and thorough manner. As a result of the system, fences were out of repair, gates were hanging half off the hinges, doors creaked, window panes were out, plastering had fallen but not to be replaced, weeds grew in the yard. As a rule, there was food for whites and blacks, but inside the house and on the dining room table, there was wanting that delicacy and refinement of touch and finish which can make a home the most convenient, comfortable, and attractive place in the world. Withal, there was a waste of food and other materials, which was sad. When freedom came, the slaves were almost as well fitted to begin life anew as the master, except in the matter of book learning and ownership of property. The slave owner and his sons had mastered no special industry. They unconsciously had imbibed the feeling that manual labor was not the proper thing for them. On the other hand, the slaves, in many cases, had mastered some handicraft, and none were ashamed and few unwilling to labor. Finally, the war closed and the day of freedom came. It was a momentous and eventful day to all at our plantation. We'd been expecting it. Freedom was in the air and had been for months. Deserting soldiers returning to their homes were to be seen every day. Others who had been discharged or whose regiments had been patrolled were constantly passing near our place. The grapevine telegraph was kept busy day and night. The news and mutterings of great events were swiftly carried from one plantation to the other. In the fear of Yankee invasions, the silverware and other valuables were taken from the big house and buried in the woods and guarded by trusted slaves. Woe be to anyone who would have attempted to disturb the buried treasure. The slaves would give the Yankee soldiers food, drink, clothing, anything but that which had been specifically entrusted to their care and honor. As the great day drew near, there was more singing in the slave quarters than usual. It was bolder, had more ring, and lasted later into the night. Most of the verses of the plantation songs had some reference to freedom. True, they had sung those same verses before, but they had been careful to explain that the freedom in these songs referred to the next world and had no connection with the world, with life in this world. Now they gradually threw off the mask and were not afraid to have it let known that freedom in their songs meant freedom of the body in this world. The night before the eventful day, word was sent to the slave quarters to the effect that something unusual was going to take place at the big house the next morning. There was little, if any, sleep that night. All is excited, and all were excited and expected. Early the next morning was sent to all the slaves, young and old, to gather to the house. In company with my mother, brother, sister, and a large number of slaves, I went to the master's house. 
All of our master's family were standing or seating, seated on the veranda of the house where they could see what was to take place and hear what was to be said. There was a feeling of deep interest or perhaps sadness on their faces, but not bitterness. As I now recall the impression they made upon me, they did not at that moment seem to be sad because of the loss of property, but rather because of parting with those who had, they had reared and who were in many cases very close to them. The most distinct thing that I can now recall in connection with the scene was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go where and when we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children, while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was the day for which we had been so long praying, but fearing that we would never see. For some minutes there was great joy and thanksgiving and wild scenes of ecstasy, but there was no feeling of bitterness. In fact, there was pity among the slaves for our former owners. The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted for a brief period, for I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feeling, the great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children seemed to take possession of them. <clears throat> it was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 out into the world to provide for himself. In a few hours, the great question with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. These were the questions of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. Was it any wonder that within a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased and a feeling of deep gloom began to pervade the slave quarters? To some, it seemed that now they were in actual possession of it. Freedom was a more serious thing that they had expected to find it. Some of the slaves were 70 or 80 years old. Their best days were gone. They had no more strength with which to earn a living in a strange place and among strange people, even if they had been sure where to find a new place of abode. To this class, the people, the problem seemed especially hard. Besides, deep down in their hearts, there was a strange and peculiar attachment to old master and old mistress and to their children, which they found it hard to think of breaking off. With these, they had spent, in some cases, Nearly half a century, it was no light thing to begin thinking of parting. Gradually, one by one, stealthily at first, the older slaves began to wander from the slave quarters back to the big house to have a to have whispered conversation with their former owners as to the future. All right. I find that incredible. I find that so inspiring. I can't fathom having been enslaved, seeing my family enslaved, and then the, I'm speechless that he can say, I didn't harbor this animosity. That instead of wanting vengeance, we have these stories that, of people fulfilling these promises that they didn't have to fulfill. People with unbelievable integrity in guarding the, the wives of, of, uh, of the, the slaves owners and, and their children. And this... This is, I literally, I literally don't have words. I, I could never aspire to that level of virtue. The idea that something so woefully unjust could be done. And yet, listen to his response and the response of the other slaves that he's talking about. Forgiveness, compassion, 
uh, empathy, uh, uh, fulfillment of, of duty, even if that duty is unjust, just because they were the type of people of unbelievable integrity and gratitude, saying that they were the lucky ones to, to leave Africa, to get the inheritance of not only this great country, but the Christian faith, um, other centricness, where they wished to send missionaries back to the places where they were enslaved. Uh, yeah, no words, no words can describe the level of virtue and, and dignity that's being described here. And this, these are the people who went through slavery. Did you hear, oh, pay me all these reparations? Oh, these people should be punished. Did you hear vindictiveness? No. If they can do it, we can do it, <laughs> right? It, and th this goes way beyond the issue of slavery. Th these, this is an example. This is the writing of a saint here. That something so wicked can be done to you, and you can respond with tenderness and empathy and understanding and kindness. That that's what Christ did. He said, "Forgive them. They know not what they do." Whoo! Wow, that. I think needs to inform the 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 virtue of those slaves who who go all the way back to these times that is what should be in actually pervading our conversation on the topic. What do you think Booker T Washington would say? Would he want to stir up a spirit of of strife or envy? Would he want to dredge up the the wrongs and evils that had done? I think he would say the poor white people in many cases, as he says, were worse off. Why? Because they lacked virtue. And really, that's what matters. In a sense, they weren't free. They were enslaved to their, to their racism. They were enslaved to their, their sloth. They, they didn't have any skills. Um, yeah, I think he said it well enough. All right, so our next person we're going to be reading from, and then we'll, we'll probably have to wrap things up, it's much shorter. I think that may have been one of the longest quotes we've had yet. Um, this is from Thomas, uh, Thomas Sowell, and I really like what he has to say specifically about reparations. This is actually titled The Reparations Fraud. Okay, here we go. Self-preservation is said to be the first law of nature, and this applies not only to human beings, but also to organizations and movements. The March of the Dimes was set up to fight polio, but it didn't disband when polio was wiped out by vaccines, nor did civil rights organizations disband after civil rights laws were passed. The fatal mistake made by those who imagine they can appease movements and organizations with concessions is that these concessions are incidental trophies for those who receive them, but unmet grievances are fundamental to their continued viability. Back in the 1930s, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain thought that he could buy off Hitler with concessions to avoid war. More recently, both Israel and the Clinton administration discovered that offering even the most extraordinary concessions could not buy off Yasser Arafat. For either Hitler or Arafat to have made a lasting peace would have been to say that his grievances had now been met, and that would have been a devastating blow to the movement which provided his power. Against this background, it may be easier to understand why a demand can be made and a crusade launched to get something that everybody knows in advance will not be given. Reparations for slavery. No way are millions of white Asian, Hispanic Americans going to pay reparations for something that happened before their ancestors ever set foot on American soil. 
even those whites whose ancestors were here before the Civil War know that most of those ancestors, whether they lived in the North or the South, owned no slaves. Seen in this light, the demand for reparations may seem like an exercise in futility. However, seen as the source of a lasting unmet grievance, it's a stroke of genius to keep blacks separated from other Americans in an aggrieved constituency to support black leaders in politics, organizations, and movements. This demand also mobilizes a certain amount of support or sympathy among whites, especially those in the media or in academia, where such support or sympathy costs nothing and allows those who give it to relieve themselves of some sense of guilt while risking other people's money and national cohesion. Some white politicians can also benefit at little or no cost to themselves by expressing sympathy with the reparations cause or even voting for meaningless apologies for what others did centuries ago. For these various groups, reparations is a win-win issue. For everyone else, including the vast majority of blacks, it's a lose-lose issue. Blacks have already begun suffering losses from con men who have asked them to sign up for their individual shares of the reparations and have stolen their identity or used it to fraud them, but this is just a down payment on the losses from this feudal crusade. In a democracy, a minority that is no longer even the largest minority can afford to alienate, much less embitter the majority which ultimately holds the political power in the country. Too often, unending demands and grievances from black leaders and the spokesmen create the impression that most blacks want something for nothing. In reality, most blacks lifted themselves out of poverty before the civil rights laws or the welfare state took effect. Not only do most whites not know this, neither do most blacks today. For their leaders have taken credit for this progress by depicting it as the fruits of their civil rights movement and political efforts. But the poverty rate among blacks fell by half between 1940 and 1960, before any of the major federal civil rights legislation or the vast expansion of the welfare state under President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. Between 1940 and 1960, black males' number of years of schooling doubled. How surprising is it that doubling your education raises your income? In short, most blacks raise themselves out of poverty but their leaders robbed them of this achievement and the respect that it deserved in the eyes of blacks and whites alike by making it look like a concession from the government and a product of agitation. Pointing blacks in a direction from which little can be expected and away from the enormous opportunities open in the economy is a formula for personal frustration, even if it benefits quote-unquote leaders. But then that frustration is itself a benefit to these leaders who need a constituency with a sense of grievance. So I promise to give a uh, possible motivation for this, and, well, I guess I didn't. Thomas Sowell did. That these institutions, civil rights institutions um, as well, want to continue, and the leaders therein want to continue being leaders and those who are part of the organization, own the organization, benefit from the organization, wish to keep their place. And what better than to choose something extraordinarily difficult that you can always agitate around, that you can always point people to, a way of getting, quote, something from nothing. But what he points out, and I think what uh, Booker T. Washington would affirm, is that this is the wrong way to do it. Instead, what matters is personal responsibility. 
What matters is the actions that we take that are already in front of us. The way that we can, we can enjoy the blessings of liberty in a place which is free. So I really like the point that he makes here that when we have these, um, we have these so-called leaders imagining that, that it was their work that, that, that brought um, particularly African-Americans out of poverty, that's false. So Thomas Sowell would say that that is the uh, black people themselves through education, through hard work, uh, through taking on responsibility. That's what did it. That's what will continue to do it. Um, so yes, well, many, many reasons we oppose, um, we oppose the reparations. Terribly unfair, destructive to society, economically, practically impossible, contrary to the forgiveness which we're meant to offer, destructive to society, um, has the problems of single-factor analysis whereby we would also have to penalize every other bad thing that went on, and then we'd have to do the flip side. We'd have to reward everybody who has an ancestor which did a good thing. The problem of the present, where it would seem that, if anything, we should punish people who do crimes today. But if we punish by races, that would that would punish minorities, which... Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. And if we decide that it's actually worse, that they're the ripples from the past, then that pushes us deep into the past for terrible, grievous things. And then we're finding Italians and, and Arabs and Genghis Khan's 10% of the population that he's related to. And all of that is ridiculous. And that in the end, there is one time that exists, and that is the present. And that is where we ought to live. And some of those... Um, setbacks that could certainly be real. Um, well, that's the type of struggle that can build the virtue to which happiness will ultimately and permanently attach. All right. Well, if you ever want to email into the show, email thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. If you think that I was on target, let me know. If you think I wasn't, let me know. If you have some additional arguments, I'm sure I'm going to hit stop record and go, oh, now I had like four things I wanted to say and I'll never get to them again. Um, but if you have anything to add, email me. I always appreciate everybody who emails in. Um, I appreciate you guys sharing the show. Uh, leave a review if you can. And uh, yeah. God bless.